to talk about idolatry today. For those of you who have been in uh, Tuesday Bible study, we're in the middle of Isaiah, and Isaiah is kind of a long march. We usually get maybe one or two chapters a week. And right now we're in the middle of the poetic section that starts with Isaiah 40 and goes on for a number of verses. And in there it talks about idolatry. So I've got idolatry on my mind. Then we have today the story of Phineas, Pincus. In last week's story, it talked about the Midianite women who seduced the Israelite men to come and worship their gods. We have idolatry again. Then we have Elijah today. And just before that, he had slaughtered all the prophets of Baal. So we have idolatry again. Tell me three or four times, I catch right on. So we're going to talk about idolatry. Then I saw something that Yeshua had said that I had never seen before. I've only been doing this for, I don't know how many years. And all of a sudden it was in my Bible new this year. And it gave me an insight into idolatry that I never had before. And that's why I want to talk about it, because I had always understood idolatry as worshiping something that would give you a better deal than God would give you. That's sort of the way I have always taught it. You're not getting what you want from God. You go to some other source, some other bureaucrat, and say, all right, I want a better deal here. And that's certainly true, but that's not really what's going on. So let's start with the progression. You remember in the Torah, as God takes the people of Israel out of Egypt, virtually immediately, they are dancing around a golden calf. Now, you would think that having watched the plagues, having watched the sea split, having watched the fire descend on the mountain, they would sort of get the idea that God was God and and he meant what he said. Yet they did the golden calf. And then in last week's Torah portion, you got these Midianite babes that come into the camp and seduce them and bang, they're off after another God. Early in the Bible, what I think is going on, and this is not scriptural, this is genealogy, do with this whatever you like. Early in the Bible, idols were regarded as other gods. In other words, they were regarded as something real. So yeah, we have Jehovah. Yeah, he's really powerful. Yeah, he's our God. But the Egyptians have their gods, and the Canaanites have their gods, and the Midianites have their gods. And so if we move off of our God to another God, yeah, we're going away from our God, but it is, in fact, the case we are going to another God. And early on, that seems to be the understanding. By the time we get to Isaiah, the prophet is flat saying that these so-called other gods are not gods at all. They're completely false. So in that series of chapters, the prophet continually mocks the idea of idols. And he says things like, okay, trot your guys up here and uh, have them tell you what's going to happen next. Tell them to predict the future. Constantly sort of mocking these idols. And the idea there is that these really aren't anything. They are non-existent. In fact, when we get to the Psalms, and this is one of my favorite Psalms when we talk about this stuff, Psalm 115, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does what he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. 
So the idea is you become what you worship. So if you are worshiping an idol or worshiping something false, eventually you become like the thing that you worship. And of course, the thing that you worship is without power, without life, without anything, you become like that. So this is the understanding that we have by the time of the prophet Isaiah and by the time of the writing of the Psalms. Very different, I think, than the understanding that they might have had as they came out of Egypt. Now, I'm going to say, this is not scripture, this is just genealogy, reading the scripture and seeing how people behave. Because as I say, if you've got the very presence of God in the middle of your camp, if you then turn and worship another idol, I'm suggesting that you're not thinking that you are worshiping something that doesn't exist. You are simply changing allegiance from one God to another. That would make sense, at least in the human mind, at that point. By the time we get to Isaiah, the scripture is saying, hey, these aren't even real. Get over it. Isaiah is writing about 120 years before the southern kingdom is destroyed. And both the northern and the southern kingdom were destroyed for idolatry, idol worship. And I've said many times, exile is therapeutic. What God does, he sends you to the place that will correct what it is that caused you to get sent into exile. All right, you guys want to do idol worship? Fine. We'll send you to Idol Central. We'll send you to Babylon. And we'll do idols for a while. So they come back out of exile after their time in Babylon. And one of the things that you notice reading the Gospels is there is no mention of idol worship whatsoever. And in fact, the Jews in Yeshua's time are just totally punctilious. Boy, they are doing everything, crossing the I's, dotting the T's, on and on and on. No idols in this camp. But there are. And this is the insight that I got the other night. And as I say, after all these years of teaching this, I'm finally catching on. I'm reading a passage in Matthew 16, verse 4. And it says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. There's a word in there that I had, I mean, I've read it over and over and over again, as all you have. But the word that caught my attention this time was adulterous. He says, an evil and adulterous generation. And I was just sort of thinking, evil and adulterous, you know, like bad, worse, and worser. It just sort of trips off the tongue and you just blow right by it. But God has a specific understanding of what spiritual adultery is. From God's perspective, he and Israel are a married couple, if you will. And so when Israel goes herring off after other gods, he regards it as adultery. So we have in the gospel times the idea that no graven images for us. Boy, we aren't putting up any of them statues. But Yeshua calls them adulterous which tells me that that generation is still in idolatry somehow. Well, how is that generation in adultery? How are they worshiping idols? What is idol worship at the time of Yeshua? And fast-forwarding now, what is idol worship for us? Because I don't know anybody in the church, I mean, you, you can sort of quibble with the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox with their icons and their statues, and I understand that and not really arguing that. But if you go to any Baptist church or evangelical church or anything like that, you're not going to find statues, icons, and so forth. And they would 
all look at you like this if you walked in with one. No idol worship for us, just like there was no idol worship for the Jews at the time of Yeshua. We went to Babylon. We learned that lesson. We ain't going to do that anymore. Yet Yeshua is saying, you guys are in adultery, which is to say that you are idol worshipers in some sense. Now, back to my original statement. I have always thought that the reason that you would go after an idol is you thought you could get a better deal from the idol than what you can get from God. I mean, that's why I wouldn't go after an idol. You know, if God was saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, and I got an idol over here that says, hey, that stuff's okay, and I really want to do it, then I'm tempted. And I can see, for example, the Simeonites in Parashat Pincus saying, oh, hmm. well, let's see, when Dad gave us the prophecies, he said to us and to Levi, that I'm not going to join myself to your anger and I'm going to scatter you and I'm the number two son and he disinherited Reuben so I should be next. Yet I've got this deal where he says, nah, you're not going to be inheriting either. Well, gee, if I form a marriage with the Midianites, maybe I can be something. Maybe I can get a better deal. Alliances are made by marriage all throughout history. One king and another king want to make an alliance. They swap sons and daughters and have marriages to cement themselves together. So the idea of a leader of the Midianites and a leader of the Simeonites getting together, if you will, in order to cement an alliance certainly would make sense from the point of Simeon. I may be able to get a better deal than what I'm getting here in Israel because in Israel I'm going to be scattered My brother Levi at least made that scattering a good deal because he gets to serve God. I don't get anything. So maybe we'll try this other deal here. And then all part of that, by the way, is we got to worship their gods. So maybe I can get a better deal. And of course, we know that that didn't work out too well for them. Some 20,000 of them got slaughtered. And if you look at the census, a big chunk of Simeon is missing from the first census. So they're the ones that kind of got whacked in this business with Pincus. But the only reason that makes sense is if you think that these idols are something real and it's just a case of, well, yeah, Jehovah's our God. Whoever he was is their God. We'll just switch allegiance. A little bit of adultery here, a little bit of changing sides, but we're still worshiping gods. But that doesn't work at the time of Yeshua. And as I say, we read in the Psalms and we see in Isaiah and so forth that the prophets uniformly later on in the scriptures say, these things are nothing. There isn't any there there. It's really stupid to worship these things. So what is going on at the time of Yeshua? What I will suggest is that idol worship is a way of justifying bad behavior or behavior that God doesn't approve of. What do I mean? Let's look at the time of Yeshua. I'm in Mark 7. And he said to them, he being Yeshua, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what's the idol? the commandments of men being regarded as doctrine. That's the idol. 
And what that means is, in that society, the religious authorities have said, this behavior of yours that you want to do, which is contrary to what God says you should do, is authorized. That's the idolatry. What happens is, some religious authority, whether it be a god as in a statue, or the priesthood, or the Pharisees, or the Pope, or your pastor, or by the way, the false prophet at the end, right? Isn't that what the false prophet at the end does? The false prophet at the end comes to the people in the world and says, this is what God would have you do. This is the doctrine now. And so what happens is you now have authorization from a trusted source to misbehave. And that's what we're dealing with today as you have these churches with rainbow flags popping up like evil mushrooms. What's happening there is they are teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And it's exactly the same thing that Yeshua is talking about. And you go to any one of those churches and you bring in a statue of whatever, and they will just all be totally horrified and kick you right out of church, you idolater. They absolutely will just like the Pharisees would have kicked you right out of camp if you had tried to raise up a golden calf in Israel at the time of Yeshua. We are not idolaters. Am I saying this all makes sense to you? It's really important because that's the time we live in now. And today, there's got to be a hook. What is it that would tempt you to worship an idol? whether that idol is a statue or whether that idol is the doctrines of men. The oral Torah in case of the Jews or whatever it is in case of the Christian church. It's, It's the same phenomenon. It's just different incarnations of it. And the hook is almost always sex. I mean, that's where it starts. That That's the hook that gets you in. And then once you're in, we do other stuff. Look at what happens with the Midianites under Finkus. What's the hook? These Midianite babes waltz through the camp and start seducing folks. That's the way it works. What's the hook today? Ooh, you get to roll your own sex. You get to be anything you want. You get to do anything you want. And we are going to approve that in the name of love. It's always the same hook. And then, as I say, once the hook is set, other stuff follows. Now, it's interesting. If you look at all of the sacrifices and ceremonies and holidays and all of the stuff, one of the things that you'll notice is in the worship of Jehovah, there is no sex involved. There's one commandment about sex, be fruitful and multiply. Thereafter, it simply is a list of except with her or except with him. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, I I gave you reproductive organs for a reason. they're, They're supposed to be used but not with him, not with her, not with it. And so there's a list of things where it's not appropriate. But other than that, it has no place in worship. Look at pagan religions. You want a hot time in the old town tonight, you go to the temple. And I was reading in Second Kings for some other reason, and Josiah was the last of the righteous Israelite kings, and he was not able to turn the country around. But if you go to 2 Kings 23, they find a copy of the Torah in the temple, and they read it to him, and he's convicted. And he starts righteously going through the country and cleaning stuff up. And he does things like 
gets rid of the house of the male prostitutes, which was in the temple, takes the Asherah out of the temple, gets rid of the priests of Baal. There's an entire chapter of stuff that he got rid of that was common in Israel. It was all over Israel, and nobody thought it was a big deal. Everybody thought it was okay to include in the temple itself. He spends an entire chapter cleaning stuff out of Israel to include the temple, and then he finally dies, and his successor goes right back to doing it. And that's where we are. That's where we are as a society right now. We have got Baals and Asherah and all those kinds of things in our temple. And they've been brought in by religious authorities. They have been taught as doctrine. And I'm using the rainbow flag as my poster child here. There's other stuff. Understand, I'm not just picking on that, although it's worth picking on. But if you go into one of these places and you say, that rainbow flag is an abomination. God gave you the rainbow for a purpose, and you're misusing it. They will look at you and say, you fundamentalist, you hater. And as I say, idolatry does not involve statues anymore. What it involves now is the doctrines of men. And what's going to happen next is you're going to have the false prophet who is going to come up and take these same people who are deceived about their rainbow flag and continue to deceive them and move them right along to worshiping the beast. That's what happens next. And the thing that's important for us, and the reason I'm talking about this, is up until I read that little passage by Yeshua, where he calls them adulterous, I didn't understand what was going on. And that's why this is important, because this is where we live right now. And there's two problems. Problem number one is ordinary sin. I don't know about you, but I do some of that. I do a lot of that. Well, I do it all the time, okay? Ordinary sin, which you recognize as sin, you can repent of. Sin that you believe is authorized, you cannot repent of because you don't recognize it as sin. So if the doctrine says you and your German shepherd can be a family, and you say, wow, I love old Wolf there, you don't see it as sin. And because you don't see it as sin, you can't repent That's the danger of idolatry. Not the sin part. We all sin. It's the inability to recognize where you are to repent and turn and do something else. That's why this is so dangerous. And that's why idols show up as a prominent part all through Scripture. Because God is telling us. Starts off with statues and these other things that we think are gods. And we look for a better deal. But then as you go through Scripture, and finally it says in Scripture, none of this stuff is real, folks. I mean, how stupid can you be? You cut down a tree and you use half of it to bake your bread and you fall down in front of the other half of it and worship. How dumb can you be? That's literally what the Scripture says in Isaiah. How stupid can you be? So, oh, cool, fine. No more statues. Got it. But that doesn't mean the impulse has gone away and it doesn't mean that the thing that the idol causes you to do has gone away because humans don't change. Our essential nature is the same today as it was back then. That's why we read these books, because we can see how they did it and where they stumbled, and one hopes that we can then avoid that trap ourselves. That's the idea. So whenever you've got something that you want to do, 
that God doesn't approve of in Scripture, and you are tempted to justify it through the use of some church doctrine, grab yourself by the stacking swivel and say, stop! Because what you're doing is you're going into idol worship. As I say, an idol gives you authority to do something that God says not to. That's what an idol does. 